Chapter 27 of Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Silvestre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Fantomas by Marcella Lane and Pierre Silvestre. Translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter 27 Three Surprising Incidents. Nebe went off duty at five in the morning and returned to his own home to go to bed. As a general rule, he slept like a top after a night on duty, but on this occasion he could not close an eye, being far too uneasy about the consequences of his cooperation in Gurn's escape. A few minutes before six in the evening, he had taken advantage of no warders being about to slip Gurn from cell number 127 to cell number 129, whence he could make his way to the roof. At six, when he actually came on duty, Nabe opened the peephole in the door of number 127, as he did in all the others, and saw that Gurn had made an admirable dummy figure in the bed. It was so good that it even deceived a head warder who made a single rapid inspection of all the cells when Nabe was on one of his several rounds during the night. Obviously Gurn must have got clear away from the prison, for if he had been caught it would certainly have become generally known. These reflections somewhat comforted the restless man, but he knew that the most difficult part of his task was still before him, the difficulty of simulating astonishment and distress when he should get back to the prison presently and be told by his fellow warders of the prisoner's escape, and the difficulty of answering in a natural manner to the close interrogation to which he would be subjected by the governor and the police, and possibly even Monsieur Fusilier, who would be in a fine rage when he learned that his captive had escaped him. Nebe meant to pretend ignorance and even stupidity. He would far rather be called a fool than found out to be a knave and an accomplice. About half-past eleven, Nebe got up. Gurn's escape must certainly be known at the prison by this time. The warder on duty would have gone to the cell about seven to wake the prisoner, and though nothing might have been detected then, the cell would infallibly have been found to be empty at eight o'clock when the morning broth was taken round, and then... As he walked from his home round to the prison, Nebe met the gang of masons coming out for dinner. He crossed the street towards them, hoping to hear some news, but they passed by him in silence, one or two of them giving a careless nod or word of greeting. At first Nebe took their silence for a bad sign, thinking they might have been warned to give him no alarm. But he reflected that if Gurn's escape were discovered, as it surely must be, the authorities would probably prefer not to let the matter become widely known. As he reached the porter's lodge, his heart beat violently. What would old Morin have to tell him? But old Morin was very busy trying to make his kitchen fire burn properly, instead of sending all the smoke pouring out into the room. The old man's slovenly figure was just visible in a clearing in the smoke, and he returned to Bay's salutation with nothing more than a silent salute. That's funny, thought Nebay, and he passed through the main courtyard toward the clerk's offices at the end. Through the windows he could see the staff, a few bending over their work, most of them reading newspapers, none of them obviously interested in anything special. Next he presented himself before the warder's turnkey, and again he was allowed to pass on without a word. By this time Gurn's accomplice was in a state of such nervous tension that he could hardly restrain himself from catching hold of one or other of the warders whom he saw at their work and asking them questions. How could the escape of so important a prisoner as the man who had murdered Lord Beltham create so little excitement as this? Nebe longed to rush up the flights of stairs to number 127 
and interrogate the warder who had gone on duty after himself, and whom he was now about to relieve in turn. He must surely know all about it, but it would not do to create suspicion, and Nabay had sufficient self-control left to go upstairs at his usual leisurely pace. Outwardly calm and steady, he reached his post just as the clock was striking twelve. He was ever punctuality itself, and he was due on duty at noon. Well, Colas, he said to his colleague, here I am, you can go now. Good, said the warder, I'll be off at once. I'm on again at six tonight, and he moved away. Everything all right? Nabay inquired, in a tone he tried to make as casual as possible, but that trembled a little nevertheless. Quite, said Colas, perfectly naturally, and he went away. Nabay could contain himself no longer, and the next second he threw caution to the winds. Rushing to Gurn's cell, he flung the door open. Gurn was there, sitting on the foot of his bed, with his legs crossed and a notebook on his knees, making notes with the quietest attention. He scarcely appeared to notice Nabay's violent invasion. "'Oh, so you are there?' stammered the astonished warder. Gurn raised his head and looked at the warder with a cryptic gaze. "'Yes, I'm here.' All manner of notions crowded through Nabe's brain, but he could find words for none of them. Had the plot been discovered before Gurn had had time to get away, or had a trap been laid for himself through the medium of one of the prisoners to test his own incorruptibility? Nabe went white and leaned against the wall for support. At last Gurn spoke again, reassuring him with a smile. "'Don't look so miserable,' he said. "'I am here.' That is a matter of absolutely no importance. We will suppose that nothing passed between us yesterday, and that's an end to it. So you haven't gone? You didn't go? said Nabay again. No, Gurn replied. Since you are so interested, all I need say is that I was afraid to risk it at the last minute. Nabay had cast a keen and experienced eye all over the cell. Under the washstand, he saw the little bundle of clothes which he had brought the prisoner the previous day. He rightly opined that the first thing to do was to remove these dangerous articles, whose presence in Gurn's cell would appear very suspicious if they happened to be discovered. He took the bundle and was hurriedly stowing it away under his own clothes when he uttered an exclamation of surprise. The things were wet, and he knew from his own experience that the rain had never ceased throughout the whole of the night. Gurn, he said reproachfully, you are up to some trick. These things are soaked. You must have gone out last night, or these things would not be like this. Gurn smiled sympathetically at the warder. Not so bad, he remarked. That's pretty good reasoning for a mere jailer. And as Nabay was about to press the matter, Gurn anticipated his questions and made frank confession. Well, yes, I did try to get out. Got as far as the clerk's office last evening, but at the last minute I funked it and went back onto the roof. But when I got into number 129 again, I found I could not get back into my own cell, for, as you know, 129 was locked outside. So to avoid detection, I returned to the roof and spent the night there. At daybreak, I took advantage of the little disturbance caused by the workmen coming in and slipped down from the roof just as they were going up. As soon as I found myself on this floor, I ran along this corridor and slipped into my own cell. When your friend Colas brought me my broth, he did not notice that my cell was unlocked, and there you are. The explanation was not altogether convincing, but Nabay listened to it and pondered the situation. On the whole, it was much better that things should be as they were, 
but the warder was wondering how the great lady, who paid so mighty well, might take the matter. She most certainly had not promised so large a sum of money, nor paid the good round sum of ten thousand francs down in advance, merely in order that Gurn might have a little walk upon the tiles. What was to be done with regard to that personage? With much ingenuousness, Nabe confided his anxiety to the prisoner, who laughed. "'It is not all over yet,' he declared. "'Indeed, it is only just beginning. What if we only wanted to test you and prove your quality? Make your mind easy, Nabe. If Gurn is in prison at the present moment, it is because he has his own reasons for being there. But who is able to predict the future?' It was time for Gurn to go to the exercise yard, and Nabe, reassuming the uncompromising attitude that all warders ought to maintain when in custody of prisoners, led the murderer down to the courtyard. In his office at the law courts, Monsieur Fusilier was having a private interview with Juve, and listening with much interest to what the clever detective inspector was saying to him. "'I tell you again, sir, I attach great importance to the finding of this ordnance map in Gurn's rooms.' Yes, said Monsieur Fusilier, with a touch of skepticism. And I will tell you why, Juve went on. About a year ago, when I was engaged on the case of the murder of the Marquise de Langrune at her chateau at Beaulieu, down in Lot, I found a small piece of a map showing the district in which I was at the time. I took it to Monsieur de Prel, the magistrate who was conducting the inquiry. He attached no importance to it, and I myself could not see at the time that it gave us any new evidence. Quite so, said Monsieur Fusilier. There is nothing particularly remarkable in finding a map, or a piece of a map showing a district in the district itself. Those are Monsieur de Prel's very words to me, said Juve with a smile, and I will give you the same answer I gave him, namely, that if some day we could find the other portion of the map which completed the first piece we found, and could identify the owner of the two portions, there would then be a formal basis on which to proceed to base an argument. Proceed to base it, Monsieur Fusilier suggested. That's very easy, said Juve. The fragment of map numbered one, found at Beaulieu, belongs to X. I do not know who X is. But in Paris, in Gurn's rooms, I find a fragment of a map numbered two, which belongs to Gurn. If it turns out, as I expect, that the two fragments of map, when placed together, form a single and complete whole, I shall conclude logically that X who is the owner of the fragment number one, is the same as the owner of fragment number two, to wit, Gurn. How are you going to find out? inquired Monsieur Fusilier. It is in order to find out that we have sent for Delange, you've replied. He was steward to the late Marquise de Langrune, and has all the circumstantial evidence relating to that case. If he has still got the fragment of map, it will be simplicity itself to prove what I have suggested, and perhaps to make the identification I suggest. Yes, said Monsieur Fusilier, but if you do succeed, will it be of really great importance in your opinion? Will you be able to infer from that one fact that Gurn and the man who murdered the Marquise de Langrune are one and the same person? Is not that going rather far? Especially as, if I remember rightly, it was proved that the murderer in that case was the son of a Monsieur Rambert, and this young Rambert committed suicide after the crime. Juve evaded the issue. Well, we shall see, was all he said. The magistrate's clerk came into the room and unceremoniously interrupted the conversation. It has gone past two, sir, he said. There are some prisoners to examine, and a whole lot of witnesses, 
and he placed two bulky bundles of papers before the magistrate and waited for a sign to call the various persons, free or otherwise, whom the magistrate had to see. The first bundle caught Ju's attention. It was endorsed, Royal Palace Hotel Case. Anything new about the robbery from Madame van den Rosen and Princess Sonia Danidoff? He inquired, and as the magistrate shook his head, he added, Are you going to examine Mueller now? Yes, said the magistrate, at once. And after that, you are going to examine Gurn, aren't you, in connection with the Beltham case? Quite so. I wish you would oblige me by confronting the two men here in my presence. Monsieur Fusilier looked up in surprise. He could not see what connection there could be between the two utterly dissimilar cases. What object could Jew have in wanting the man who had murdered Lord Beltham to be confronted with the unimportant little hotel servant who had really been arrested rather as a concession to public opinion than because he was actually deemed capable of burglary or attempted burglary? Might not Juve, with his known mania for associating all crimes with each other, be going just a little too far in the present instance? You have got some idea in the back of your head, said Monsieur Fusilier. I've got a, a scar in the palm of my hand, Juve answered with a smile, and as the magistrate confessed that he failed to understand, Juve enlightened him. We know that the man who did that robbery at the Royal Palace Hotel burned his hand badly when he was cutting the electric wires in the princess's bathroom. Well, a few weeks ago, while I was on the lookout for someone with a scar from such a wound, I was told of a man who was prowling around the slums. I had the fellow followed up, and the very night the hunt began I was going to arrest him, when, a good deal to my surprise, I discovered that he was no other than Gurn. He escaped me that first time, but when he was caught later on I found that he has an unmistakable scar inside the palm of his right hand. It is fading now, for the burn was only superficial, but it is there. Now do you see my idea? Yes, I do, the magistrate exclaimed, and I am all the more glad to hear of it, since I am to have both the men here now. Shall I have Mueller in first? Juve assented. So you still refuse to confess, said the magistrate at last. You still maintain that your extraordinary order to let the red-haired waiter out was given in good faith? Yes, 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 sir, the night watchman answered. That very evening a new servant had joined the staff. I had not even set eyes on him. When I saw this stranger, I took him to be the servant who had been engaged the day before, and I told them to open the door for him. That is the real truth. And that is all? That is positively all. We are only charging you with complicity, the magistrate went on, for the man who touched the electric wires burned his hand. That is a strong point in your favor. And you also say that if the thief were put before you, you could recognize him? Yes, said the man, confidently. Good, said Monsieur Fusilier, and he signed to his clerk to call in another personage. The clerk understood, and Gurn was brought in between two municipal guards, and was followed by the young licentiate in law, Maitre Roger de Serres, who represented his leader at most of the preliminary examinations. As Gurn came in, with a light from the window falling full on his face, Monsieur Fusilier gave a curt order. Mueller, Turn around and look at this man. Mueller obeyed, and surveyed with some bewilderment, and without the least comprehension, the bold head and the well-built muscular frame of Lord Beltham's murderer. Gurn did not flinch. 
Do you recognize that man? the magistrate demanded. Muller ransacked his brains and looked again at Gurn, then shook his head. No, sir. Gurn, open your right hand, the magistrate ordered. Show it. And he turned again to Muller. The man before you seems to have been burned in the palm of the hand, as that scar shows. Can you not remember having seen that man at the Royal Palace Hotel? Muller looked steadily at Gurn. On my honor, sir, although it would be in my interest to recognize him, I am bound to acknowledge that I really and truly don't. Monsieur Fusilier had a brief conversation aside with Juve, and then, the detective appearing to agree with him, turned once more to the night watchman. Muller, he said, the court is pleased with your frankness. You will be set free provisionally, but you are to hold yourself at the disposal of the court of inquiry. And he signed the municipal guards to lead the gratefully protesting man away. Meanwhile, Gurn's case appeared to him to be becoming much more serious, and much more interesting. He had the prisoner placed in front of him, while Juve, who had withdrawn into a dark corner of the room, never took his eyes off the murderer. Gurn, he began, can you give me an account of your time during the second half of December of last year? Gurn was unprepared for the point-blank question, and made a gesture of doubt. Monsieur Fusilier, probably anticipating a sensation, was just on the point of ordering Delon to be called, when he was interrupted by a discreet tap on the door. His clerk went to answer it, and saw a gendarme standing at the door. At almost the first words he said, the clerk uttered an exclamation and wheeled round to the magistrate. Oh, Monsieur Fusilier, listen, they have just told me. But the gendarme had come in. He saluted the magistrate and handed him a letter, which Monsieur Fusilier hastily tore open and read. To Monsieur Germain Fusilier, examining magistrate, the law courts, Paris. The special commissioner at Bretagne Station has the honor to report that this morning at 8 a.m., the police informed him of the discovery on the railway line, five kilometers from Bretagne on the Orleans side, of the dead body of a man who must either have fallen accidentally or been thrown intentionally from a train bound for Paris. The body had been mutilated by a train traveling in the other direction, but papers found on the person of the deceased, and in particular a summons found in your pocket, showed that his name was Delon, and he was on his way to Paris to wait upon you. The special commissioner at Bretagne Station has, quite late, been informed of the following facts. Passengers who left the train on its arrival at the Austerlitz terminus at 5 a.m. were examined by the special commissioner at that station and subsequently allowed to go. Possibly you have already been informed. We have, however, thought it our duty, after having searched the body, to report this identification to you, and have therefore requisitioned an officer of the police at Bretagne to convey to you the information contained in this communication. Monsieur Fusilier had turned pale as he read this letter. He handed it to Juve. With feverish haste, the famous detective read it through and wheeled round to the gendarme. Tell me, do you know what has been done? Do you know if this man's papers, all his papers, were found and have been preserved? The man shook his head in ignorance. Juve clasped the magistrate's hand. I'm off to Bretagne this instant, he said in a low tone. Throughout this incident, Maitre Roger de Serres had remained in a state of blank incomprehension. Gurn's face was more expressionless and imperturbable than ever. End of chapter 27 Recording by Alan Winteroud Boomcoach
www.blogspot.com.